All right, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to this conversation with Senator John McCain. Uh, when I first met Senator John McCain in his office, I was struck by his generosity of spirit and his warmth, uh, something not readily uh, evident from a distance, you know. And, uh, and, and, and of course, also his, his openness, you know, to discussion and to different points of view. And uh, democratic tradition, also evident among the Republicans, I think. You know? And uh, since then, he, I've been trying to get him to come to the LSE. Uh, he visited Malaysia uh, before the Shangri-La Dialogue, as when I asked Senator McCain whether he would come to the LSE, and he said yes, and here you are. Senator McCain is here, despite being very busy in the, uh, with the Romney uh, campaign. Uh, he's here. What I had wanted him to come to the LSE to talk about, actually, was on China and Southeast Asia, my area of particular interest. But obviously, there are other areas that uh, Senator McCain will cover uh, today. Uh, and I'm sure uh, he will cover in his 15-minute uh, presentation uh, a wide range of issues. What we want you to do is to ask questions, give us your name, be brief if you can, so that there are more questions that can be asked, and also to remain seated when we finish, so that Senator John McCain can be escorted uh, out first before you get going anywhere. And so uh, let's uh, therefore begin with, of course, Senator John McCain to say those few words. And when you ask, you have no microphones. This is a short library, very intimate. Uh, but speak out so that uh, we can hear you. So without further ado, Senator John McCain. Thank you. Thank you, Munir. Thank you for uh, joining me this morning. I'm very happy to be here. It's always good to be here after the good old red eye from Atlanta. Uh, feeling great. Uh, I'd like to just make a few remarks and then I'd like to respond to any questions or comments you might have. And I'll be glad to comment on the American political scene if you would like, uh, since I know you're all interested in the upcoming elections and the recent debate and all that. But, but what I, I really like to just say a few words about um, my vision or ideas about what's going on in the world and what we need to do. What we, uh, France, England, other countries need to do to try to adjust to a dramatically changing world. But two years ago I was speaking to you Ben Ali is in power in Tunisia, Mubarak's in power in Egypt, um, Gaddafi is in power in Libya, there's no revolution in Syria taking place, so we are in a period of dramatic change uh, in the world. I think the, and this was all triggered by a young man in Tunisia who was a college graduate who couldn't get a job and was selling fruits and vegetables and he was humiliated by the police 
So he poured gasoline on himself and burned himself to death, and that lit a fire that is still spreading throughout the world. I think the Arab Spring is, is uh, misnamed because I don't think it's confined to the Arab world. I believe that Vladimir Putin is going to have his hands full. Clearly, the Chinese are going to have great challenges in the kind of continuing the kind of government that, that they have. I don't see how any, any country of 1.3 billion people can be effectively governed by a bunch of guys that get together at a seaside resort once a year and pick their successors and decide on national policy. So we're in a period of incredible change. And anybody who tries to predict what's going to be like two years from now, all I can say is two years ago did you predict what is taking place today? And I doubt if there are many, or there may be a few politicians who lie. Um, I'm, and by the way, I might point out I am glad to be here uh, because, you know, the approval rating of Congress <coughs> today in the United States is at 11 percent. Um, we're really down to paid staffers and blood relatives. Uh, and you know, I would like to meet some Americans. I travel all the time. I was in all over North Carolina and Florida t campaigning. And uh, I haven't met anyone in that 11% who approve of Congress. Uh, I'd like to because I'd like to ask them what they approve of, of what we are doing. But anyway, uh, I mean, I was, I was in a, the Atlanta airport last night before getting on the plane, a guy ran up to me and said, say, he said, anybody ever tell you you look a lot like Senator John McCain? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, doesn't it sometimes just make you mad as hell? <laughs> so uh, so uh, you can know what, it's, what, it's, uh, what we're going through. And that, by the way, that disapproval is well-deserved because we are in a gridlocked situation, and I'd be glad to discuss that with you as well. But primarily, I, I, I would like to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in the world. You couple that with the tectonic change of the world's economy shifting from U.S., Europe, this part of the world, uh, to Asia. And that is, of course, uh, is an incredible event. And the United States is going to have to adjust to those new realities uh, as well. So w what, do, what do we need to do? Uh, I talk to people all the time, say, oh, gee, we were, they were far better off under Mubarak. Uh, you know, Qaddafi wasn't so bad. Uh, Bin Ali was corrupt, but he was our guy. You know? Well, number one, the, those countries were going to change. They were going to change, whether we happened to like it or not. We may have been able to impede it, uh, but they were, the change was going to take place. Second of all, what is our fundamental principles? What are our fundamental beliefs? Is it to hang on to, to, to dictators who, uh, uh, although they may be our friends, are, are in violation of the very principles that we stand for and believe in? Now, I may sound a little idealistic when I say that, but I can't find many times in history where we have abandoned our fundamental beliefs and principles about that, uh, that, that our Creator made us all equal with certain inalienable rights. And when we have abandoned those, I think you could make an argument that 
we have paid sooner or later a rather heavy price for it. So in the United States of America today, we're in the worst recession since the, hit, since the Great Depression, the longest and deepest. And most Americans, including in my state, where nearly half the people homes are underwater. In other words, they're, they're making payments uh, that, are more, that are higher than the value of their home. Uh, and they are a mortgage that's more expensive than the value of their home. We have unemployment in my state, roughly depending on how you look at it, 9, 10%. You know, it's, uh, these numbers are always dicey because who stopped looking for work and, and, and all that. But believe me, these are hard times. So when I go to a town hall meeting and I start talking about Egypt, uh, Morsi, by the way, who many of you know, he graduated from the University of Southern California, uh, the new president of Egypt, which may account for his extremist views. But, but <laughs> anyway, anyway. Uh, and they, they want to talk about jobs and the economy, and I don't blame them. But also, what job of people like me is to explain to them that our, our economy and our welfare and our, and our need for security will impact our economy in their daily lives rather dramatically. The other thing about the uh, aspect of the American people, and it's understandable, is that they're war-weary. They're war-weary. We've, we've been in Afghanistan since 2001. We just got out of Iraq. Very badly we got out of Iraq, uh, but we are out of there. And so when I say, and I do continuously, that we have an obligation, not a privilege, but an obligation, to help the people of Syria who are being massacred with Russian weapons, with Iranians on the ground, helicopters, jet aircraft, tanks, and artillery, the, not many Americans are too sympathetic to it. But one reason why they aren't too sympathetic to it, frankly, is because we don't have a leader who tells the American people how terrible this, this is, what's going on in Syria. And so, if you don't have leaders who explain it, then obviously the people are not as well informed as, as we should be. So what should the United States do? And what should our allies do? And what should NATO do? NATO, I was just <coughs> reading a, another book about NATO and how no one at the time that it was formed had any idea that it would turn into the really one of the most important alliances in history. It was really important during the Cold War. It was still important when we went to Bosnia, when ethnic cleansing was taking place. It was still important when we went to Kosovo, where, when Muslims were being ethnically cleansed. I believe that it was probably, and so does Bill Clinton now, it should have been used to go to Rwanda to, to try to stop the massacre of some 800,000 innocent uh, people. But, uh, and in Libya, uh, although it was fractured and not led by the United States, still the, the actions taken by some members of NATO was a very important and valuable contribution. And, uh, and, I, and I'd like to just relate a very personal anecdote to you. I believed in the Libyan people. I knew that Gaddafi was a bad guy. He was responsible for the Pan Am <coughs> 103. Uh, he bombed a disco in Germany. And uh, um, I, I strongly supported 
the uprising that took place. I went to Benghazi when the fighting was still going on and spent a day in a hotel with Chris Stevens and met with the uh, Transition National Council. I had great faith in them. Last July 7th, I was in Tripoli with Chris Stevens. We went around to, on election day. We went around to all the polling places and people were there. And I, one of the things that was touching is that they had a lot of women there who had pictures on their uh, t-shirts with pictures on them of their father or their brother, their uncle, their sons or daughters who had been killed by Gaddafi. It was really quite remarkable. A lot of people were slaughtered by uh, Muammar Gaddafi. And that night, Chris Stevens and I went down to the square. Uh, there was thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And they saw us, and they recognized us, and they said, thank you, thank you, America, thank you, thank you. And then they had an election, and they rejected the Islamists. And they overwhelmingly elected the moderate, uh, democratically inclined people with a government that was led by two professors from the University of Alabama. Uh, and so things were going pretty well. But we didn't help them enough. We didn't help them get their border secure and, and uh, Al-Qaeda poured in. We didn't help them with the disarmament of these militias. We didn't help them by taking a lot of their wounded to our hospitals or bring in American military medical personnel to help people. They had some 30,000 people who were wounded. We just kind of said, well, 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 you know, they're going to have plenty of money because they've got oil. We should have done a lot more for them. And I think we just paid a very heavy price for it in the deaths of those four uh, Americans. Libya can still be okay, but they've got to have assistance in th simple things like border security, in setting up democracy, uh, doing the things that help a country that's never known democracy to have those institutions and none of us are, are doing enough. Uh, finally, let, let me just say a word about China again. Um, as you know, our administration announced a pivot to Asia. I, I didn't like the word, I didn't like the message that that word sent because it sent a message to our European friends that we were at least uh, abandoning our priorities as far as uh, our, what we needed to do and where our strategic interests lie. What we should have said, in my view, is that we're increasing our priority in China because of a broad variety uh, of reasons. Our friends in Asia now are very nervous about China. Uh, when China, when we normalized, the United States and China normalized relations, uh, we had much greater expect expectations for China than have actually happened. And now we see a kind of a ham-fisted behavior in many ways on the part of the Chinese which belies the, uh, the belief we had that they're all so wise and thousands of years of experience, etc. Our new best friends, the United States' new best friends are the Vietnamese. Um, now, there's a ship that's named after my father and grandfather, a destroyer, uh, paid a visit, a port visit, to the port of Da Nang not long ago. Now that shows you if you live long enough, anything is possible <laughs> in, this, in this world. But they have a history with China, and they are very worried. Uh, one of the factors in leading the junta that, that ruled Burma uh, to free my personal 
hero and idol and inspiration, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, was because they were worried about, uh, one of the factors was that they were worried about the overriding influence of China and the uh, exploitation of Burma uh, by the Chinese. Um, obviously, the South China Sea is the greatest manifestation of that, and uh, it has it has moved people like the Philippines. As you know, the United States came out of the Philippines in the 1970s. We are now talking about, with a number of these countries, joint operating bases. Not the kind of traditional base where you have the school and the hospital and the dependents, but the kind of a base like we already have agreed to with the Australians, where we come in, we operate, have joint operations together, and leave. And that, by the way, is a hell of a savings to the taxpayer, among uh, uh, being the most effective way to do it. So the world cries out for American leadership. And I believe that that leadership can only be effective with allies. And obviously, our traditional and perhaps most solid relationship, the unique relationship, is between the United States and England. But I would also argue that the NATO framework has also been a very important and vital part as well. So um, I believe very, very strongly it still cries out for American leadership. And, we, and it's our job, those of us who are blessed to have the opportunity to, desert, to serve our fellow citizens, to explain to them why it is that they're brother just finished five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. To go out to Walter Reed and see these young people who have lost their limbs and explain to them why we are so proud of them and their service. And to explain to the American people how much we should honor their service and their sacrifice. And tell them and make sure our obligation is to make sure that that sacrifice was not in vain. Again, I thank you all for coming today, and I hope that gives you something to talk to me about. And those of you that are from the United States uh, who are here in the audience, I'd like to remind you of the words of the late Mayor Daley of Chicago, who said, vote early and vote often. So thank <laughs> you very much. Right, uh, I, but uh, please uh, sure. make your point and come back here. Oh, good. We got a mic. Recently, the Iran Project report. Would you tell me who you are? Oh, sorry. My name is Brian Gibson. I'm a PhD student here, but I also do, do some writing for the Magella. Um, but recently, the Iran Project uh, released a report that assessed the costs and benefits of a military strike against Iran. Uh, the reports received widespread uh, support from bi bipartisan support, sorry. Uh, do you endorse the report's conclusions? If so, or if not, can you please explain why? Sure. I have not read the report, but from what you said about it, I, I do not agree. Uh, because, for the following reasons. Uh, Iran, a nuclear Iran, upsets the whole Middle East. When Iran gets a nuclear weapon, so does everybody else. The Iranians have always repeatedly committed themselves to the eradication of the state of Israel. 
And I don't fear that Iran develops a nuclear weapon, puts it on a missile and fires it at Israel. But I do fear a nuclear weapon falling into the hands of a terrorist organization such as Hezbollah, which, by the way, a drone was just flown over Israel, an interesting development, as you know. Uh, so I, I think that a nuclear-armed Iran would upset the whole Middle East. It would nuclear <coughs> would cause the entire and most unstable part of the world to be nuclearized, and I believe that it would sooner or later lead to, in some way or fashion, the delivery of a nuclear weapon. And I know of no one, frankly, I, I, as I say, I'll be glad to get the name of that report, but I really know of no one in the strategic arena in the United States, either Republican or Democrat, that believes that it would be acceptable for Iran to have a nuclear weapon. The President of the United States said it was, quote, unacceptable. And there's, there's great divisions within the United States as to when we would act and how we would act and what we would do with uh, our Israeli friends. But I know of no one on either side of the aisle in any position of authority who believes that it would be acceptable for Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. But I will also be glad to look at that study if it... Okay, lady, now, that lady in red. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Senator McCain. Um, I'm Agnes Tay from Bloomberg Clean Energy and Carbon Brief, weekly publication. Um, just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Do you agree with Ron Lee that the production, the U.S. production tax credit should be allowed to end by the end of the year? Um, I understand that legislation has cleared a committee in the Senate that would extend the PTC, but it hasn't come to the floor. What extend the what? Extend um, the PTC, the production tax credit. Oh. Um, um, what's your position on that? And as well as the... Um, the U.S. trade disputes with China and the U.S. on solar panels. As far as uh, all of these things being extended or not extended, including the tax breaks, including, all, all, you know, we're at this edge of this fiscal cliff. I, I believe that they should be extended, uh, and I think that it'd be important to do so. But if there is going to be avoidance of this fiscal cliff, then we're going to have to package everything together and sell it as a package and not uh, address it one by one. And the second question was? Uh, the U.S. and China trade war. Um, I, I think it's, it's an extremely difficult issue. And I think it's extremely complex. And I think that it's pretty clear that one of the reasons why our solar panel industry collapsed in the United States was because of the importation of much less expensive solar devices. At the same time, the part that worries me, really worries me, is cybersecurity. That is uh, the flashpoint between relations between our two countries. I remember a conversation I had with Jeffrey Immelt, the CEO of GE, and he was talking to one of the high-ranking high Chinese officials, and he said, you know, we have had in the last two months 30 cyber attacks. 20 of them we trace back to China. And you know what the answer of the Chinese official was? Oh, well, we'll look into that. Now, 
the American people and we have a right to demand that this kind of attacks uh, and and espionage is really what it is 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 stopped that that's not a good partnership between the United States and China I do not envision confrontation with China I do not envision a war with China but I what I do envision if this keeps up is a rising protectionism in the United States of America and that would mean retaliation with things like what we just saw the, the president uh, decide. Now whether the president decided that because it happens to be the year 2012 or not is a matter of conjecture uh, <laughs> that, uh, that, that you might have. But I've just, uh, everything I've ever studied about trade wars it's been the result has not been good for either side not been good for either side but at the same time you have to expect a certain level of behavior look the Chinese even hacked into my presidential campaign now that shows you how bored they must have been that, that, <laughs> uh, on, on that day so so it, they're, they're, I, I guess again there's got to be certain modicums of, of international behavior when you're dealing with your competitors. The Chinese are violating that. And that is just the reality. And sooner or later, the forces of protectionism in the United States will force us, with, with justification, to start erecting trade barriers and... Um, I have a question on this side. Yeah, yeah please. So I'm Patrick Mears. I'm a, a retired tax lawyer, but I'm not going to ask you a, a tax question. Oh, I've got a microphone. Um, I'm also an alum of, of the LSE. What you, you said, which resonated with me, was that the world cries out for U.S. leadership. But having said that, how do we get the U.S. population to cry out for the U.S. to be um, in the position of world leaders? Thank you. I'm not here to be partisan. I'll be glad to ask all of our students to vote Republican and all that, but the fact is that I'm trying, I don't think it's appropriate, frankly, for me to come here and, and, and bash the, the administration. But I think it's clear that if the President of the United States said, what's going on in Syria is, is the worst kind of behavior imaginable. Look, I went to a refugee camp on the Syria-Turkish border, and I met families whose children had been killed before their eyes. I met uh, defectors who told how they are instructed to torture and kill and gang rape. I met a group of young women who had been gang raped. Now, I've been a, I'm a pretty tough guy, I think, and yet, and yet the, the, I can't tell you how gripping that is. And they have Russian weapons, they got Iranians on the ground, and they don't mind doing whatever is necessary. Why in the world wouldn't, shouldn't we stand up and speak up for those people and say, let's get them some weapons? Now, everything that we said would happen if we intervened has now happened because we didn't intervene. Al-Qaeda is coming in there in droves, uh, and, and, and it's a very serious problem. There's tensions on the Syria-Turkish border. There's tensions on the Jordanian border. There is more and more people who are being killed every day. And I'm not saying put American boots on the ground or NATO boots on the ground. No one would ever agree with that, and I would be the first to disagree with it but at least we ought to get them some weapons with which to defend themselves. Recently, one of the Syrian leaders, a woman, said, we won't forget. 
we won't forget who helped us and who didn't. And right now, we are not providing that kind of leadership. The great strength of Ronald Reagan, I, very frankly, and I've studied him very carefully, was not that he had a great intellect, not that he was the smartest guy in America, but he had the instincts and beliefs about America and the role that we should be playing in the world. And that's why he said, tear down this wall. That's why he said Nathan Sharansky should not be treated like he is in the, in the, in the gulag. That, and after, after the Cold War was over, Nathan Sharansky said, it spread like wildfire. It was the greatest thing that ever happened in the gulag. So we, the greatest strength of an American president is the bully pulpit, both domestically and foreign policy-wise. And I would like to see this president standing up for these people. And I can't tell you the effect that it would have on them. I mean, another small story. Life is full of vignettes when you get old enough. I first met, I first met uh, Aung San Suu Kyi 15 years ago, and they never let me see her again. I put a picture of her on the, on the, on the wall of my office, and I would look at that picture every single day. Uh, house arrest, husband died, they wouldn't let her leave, uh, everything. Uh, about her and so I finally met her and then she brought four people four people two of them had been in prison for 18 years two of them had been in prison for 22 years they walked over with tears in her eyes said thank you Senator McCain thank you for speaking up for us thank you you know I didn't do a damn thing and yet here these people are thanking us they would thank President Obama if he would speak up for them and I'm sorry I feel a little passionate about it, but it, it, it's just because... You've been, you've been trying to ask, yes, please. And there's some people in the back that, yeah, uh, yeah. that are... I'll, I'll be, I'll be they're taking a nap back there. We'll wake you up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm Luke um, Harding from the Guardian newspaper. I, I was in Syria quite recently with the rebels in the north. Yeah. Um, and you say give weapons to the rebels, but w one thing that was clear to me is that there are dozens of different groups. It's very kind of fractured. Mm -hmm. Some jihadists, some mm -hmm. secular. I mean, mm -hmm. if the U.S. is to give weapons to the rebels, how do you do that? Well, um, first thing you do, you might contemplate is ha giving them a safe zone su such as a Benghazi. That's how the uh, rebels in Libya were able to organize, is that they had Benghazi, and we stopped Gaddafi at the gates of Benghazi. Another way is to give moral and uh, support to the people that we know and trust. We do have people that can identify those, but Time is not on our side. Time is not on our side. More and more jihadists are, are flowing into the country from all over. It's just a fact. When they said that if we intervened, then the jihadists would come in. Well, they've come in. They've come in. So I think one of the ways you could uh, is, is the establishment of a safe zone, which would be easy enough to do. And although um, a lot of our military people say it wouldn't, and uh, or status quo let the status quo go on you know we had a hearing nine months ago and both our secretary of defense and and our outstanding chairman of the joint chiefs of staff said it's inevitable that Bashar Assad will fall it's inevitable that he will fall well you know what's happening every time we up the ante they up the ante the Russians bring in more weapons. Right now, Iranian aircraft are overflying Iraq with weapons for Bashar Assad. 
and they are sophisticated weapons and they are killing people. So all I can say to you is there's always a risk that some of these weapons may fall into the, in the wrong hands, but I think that we could sort that out. Or do you want the status quo? I think, I think they just uncovered a situation where about 400 people were, were slaughtered the other day. So nobody said it would be easy, but um, I, I think it could easily, I, I think it could be done, and if it isn't done, then the slaughter will continue for an indeterminate yeah, period of time. Back, I, uh... Stand up so I can see you. <laughs> All right. Uh, welcome to London, uh, Senator McCain. My name is Emmanuel uh, Miskina. Uh, my question is, uh, one is uh, to do with the Republican Party, the other one is with uh, the uh, Middle East. The, with regard to the Republican Party, as you are well uh, aware, the Republican, the, the Republican Party is um, shifting to the right, and a lot of sensible, uh, pragmatic uh, 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 individuals such as yourself, Senator Dick Luger, and then uh, 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 Chuck Hegel um, uh, are uh, endangered species uh, as we speak because uh, a lot of uh, uh, intellectually inept and morally bankrupt uh, uh, guys backed by the, uh, by the Tea Party are uh, uh, coming into the Republican Party and then you know, uh, moving to the, to the far right. Uh, so seasoned politicians such as yourself and pragmatic politicians such as yourself, who did a great job with, uh, uh, um, uh, across the aisle, uh, such as the uh, immigration reform that you did with Senator Kennedy. Uh, what, 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 what are you uh, going to do with the shifting uh, paradigm in their, in their political uh, uh, spectrum? That's the first question. The second question is... <laughs> Whoa. Oh. Let, me answer, let me answer the first one, okay? Sure. First, okay? Let me answer the first one. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thanks for mentioning that I uh, lost running for the presidency. Uh, uh, after I lost, I slept like a baby. <laughs> sleep two hours, wake up and cry. Sleep two hours, wake up and cry. The reason why the Tea Party came into being was because of the extreme dissatisfaction of the American people for two years of overwhelming majorities of Democrats in the United States Congress. We got the stimulus, we got Obamacare, we got Dodd-Frank. Uh, none of those, by the way, you will hear uh, President Obama talk about in this campaign. And so they got fed up. And so there was a ground grassroots, for better or for worse, a grassroots organization that sprung literally out of nowhere. And guess what? We won the... Uh, uh, control of the House, which we'll probably keep in this election, and a very narrow thing in the Senate. And by the way, three of the candidates that we had that were Tea Party candidates in the Senate, we, anybody else would have won. So it, it was certainly a two-edged sword. But the reason why the Tea Party came about is the same reason why other grassroots mov movements come about, and that's because they were dissatisfied with what they had. That's why if Democrats and Republicans don't do a better job of governing, you are seeing the rise of the independent voter in the United States of America. The, the great, greatest increase in voting registration in America today is in, in independent voters because they're not happy with either party. So uh, look, uh, that was the will of the people. I, I, a lot of us think we know better than the people, but we ought to respect the results of elections. And what the Tea Party was all about was extreme dissatisfaction with Washington. So what am I going to, quote, do about it? I'll tell you what I do do about it. 
I try to take some of them on trips with me. I try to spend time with a lot of them and explain to them some of the things that we are talking about today. I try to talk about how we have to be a party that, that, that has a, a set of principles on immigration reform. That we're, uh, because the demographics alone will drive the Republican Party into a minority status w when you look at it. I try to tell them that uh, the, American, the greatness of America is that we lead in the world. I and, and I know that that's not popular with a lot of them. And I'll tell you, some of them have come around. So I'm not, I'm not ashamed or embarrassed at what happened with the Tea Party. Uh, and by the way, I was not their favorite, <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. But, so, uh, but it is what political dynamics and campaigns are about in America. What, what's your second? Actually, you know, if, if you don't mind, can, can we give some right. other people a right. chance? Yeah, Sorry. please. At the back there. The Time's up. At the back, the guy with the lo uh, white shirt. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Senator McCain, my name is uh, John as well. Uh, I was just wondering, since we uh, brought up the elections uh, back in 2008, why did you think that Governor Romney wasn't a fitting uh, running mate uh, of choice of yours? Well, um, uh, well, first of all, the vice president only has two duties. One is to cast a tie-breaking vote in the United States Senate in case there's a tie vote. And the other duty is to inquire daily as to the health of the president. So um, I, I, uh, I chose Sarah Palin because I thought our party needed to be energized. And I could see that we were behind, and she did energize our party. I can show you polling data that shows after she spoke to our convention, we had a three-point lead, which basically we kept until September the 15th, 2008. And on that day, the stock market went down 700 points, and we went from three points up to about six points down and never uh, recovered. I'm proud of Sarah Palin. I am proud of the work that she did. I am proud of her family. Uh, people say, do you regret sometime that you chose her? My only regret is that I, ha I had no idea that she would be attacked with such viciousness and unfairness and, and, uh, as, as she has been by the liberal left. Um, so, but it is what it is. and. Uh, I will always remain uh, proud of having her as my vice president. Mitt Romney was fine. Mitt Romney was a fine guy. It's not a matter that somebody's bad or worse. The question is, is who do you think can help you win the election? And it was our decision that we thought it was Sarah Palin. Yeah. Yeah. Senator, my name is Daniel Boy from Diplomatic Academy of Vietnam and University of Sussex. First question is like uh, about uh, U.S. foreign policy in Asia. So there's some critics from your allies, that, I mean the American allies in uh, Southeast Asia and also in Asia like Japan and Philippines about U.S. action against the uh, territory dispute between China and U.S. ally like Ch Japan, Philippines over some issue like the Scarborough and the Senkaku issue that the U.S. action is not strong enough to constrain China in the area. So what is your comment about that? And uh, sorry for being too greedy, but then this is my second question. How do you think uh, about the way the U.S. is doing on the human rights issue in Southeast Asia, especially in Vietnam after the trial uh, of uh, three blogger recently? Thank you. First of all, I think the answer in the South China Sea issue, if the Chinese would agree, is to negotiate with all of those nations together that have an interest in the South China Sea. 
The strategy the Chinese are employing now is to try to pick them off one by one. And that would, could lead to overlapping agreements. It obviously, they are, all of them would be much weaker than if they could act collectively. I think ASEAN can play a role in this. A lot of, a lot of this is up to Chinese attitude. I, I remember being briefed by the Chinese defense minister and being shown the dashed line in the South China Sea and uh, that's, you know, their, their continued advocacy of the belief that, uh, that it's a, their historic uh, uh, right to the control the, the South China Sea. Let me say a word about Vietnam if I could very quickly. Look, I love the country, I love the people. I spent a great deal of time in Vietnam when we had this whole issue of missing in action uh, and killed in action and all that. I've spent a great deal of time in Vietnam on the issue of normalized trade relations, normalized relations between our two countries and following with a free trade agreement with uh, Vietnam. So my loyalty and my commitment and my love of the Vietnamese people is without question. But now I have to tell you, I have been very disappointed in the corruption. I've been very disappointed in the continued prosecution of Catholics, Buddhists, and minorities. And obviously, one of the reasons why Vietnam's economy hasn't improved even more is because of the reluctance of companies and corporations to go to Vietnam and invest there when there is the level of corruption. So, and, I, and I, when I go to Vietnam, I tell them to their face exactly what, what, what my view is. And as a friend, I think I'm entitled to that. But I s sometimes feel a little sorry for the, for the Vietnamese people because they deserve better than the corruption that is, is throughout the, the, the Vietnamese country. The lady still are the yeah. most beautiful people. Better get a woman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Senator, I'm a. My name is Rebecca. I'm a researcher here at LSE. I'm also an Australian citizen, and I wanted your view on another Australian here in London, Julian Assange. I wanted to know whether you thought the U.S. want to extradite Julian Assange, and your view on his work with WikiLeaks. On who? Julian Assange, who's the oh. WikiLeaks white hair, <laughs> spooky looking. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a, I have a little bit, a little bit mixed emotions because I think we should be more open with as much as we can. One of the things that all governments do is that they overclassify everything, just so that they may never have a problem. And some of the things that are classified in the WikiLeaks, the first thing when you read them is, why was this classified? I mean, a lot of it is just trivial stuff. So maybe it should give us a lesson as to the classification that we put on, uh, on much of our communications and documentation. The only thing that I had a real problem with, and I still do, is that when names were, were compromised of people who were still out there that then put their lives in danger. That's my biggest problem. And I don't think if they had I think if they hadn't released that, though some of those names, they would have had a much stronger case than than they did. But it's not; it, it is just not acceptable to make public someone's name, say in Pakistan, that is cooperating with us, that that would put their lives in danger. You just you just can't do that. Yes, sir. Yeah, the guy with the microphone. Oh, who's who's at the back, there, uh, Senator? Uh, Senator McCain, thank you very much for coming to speak with us today. 
I'm a postgraduate student here at LSC. My name is Sammy Halabi, by way of Toronto, Canada. So, hi. Uh, my question for you. There has been much talk of American decline, this sense of inevitability in America and this almost inferiority complex, I'd say. And what I wanted to ask you was what your stance is on this debate and if you feel that the 21st century needs to be an American century. I think that a lot of things in this world, perception is reality and reality is perception. In the Middle East today, there is the perception, and I promise you it's because I talk to these leaders, there's a perception that the United States is withdrawing. Prior to 9-11, we had a strategy in the Middle East of containment. After 9-11, we had a strategy of confrontation, i.e. Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. Now we have a policy of disengagement. Now, uh, the famous story in Afghanistan of the uh, Taliban prisoner and the American interrogator, and the Taliban prisoner says to the American interrogator, you got the watches, we've got the time. And that has colored all of their behavior and their actions to accommodate for the United States departure. Now, should we have stayed in Iraq forever? No, but we should have left behind a residual force. Everybody now knows that Al-Qaeda is, is resurgent uh, in Iraq. Now, we lost over 4,000 brave young Americans in Iraq. Uh, in Afghanistan, I think it's pretty clear that uh, there is this uh, perception, because of the continued announcements that we are leaving, that the Taliban is now making a significant comeback. And we've killed a lot of Al-Qaeda, we've killed a lot of Taliban, but if the fundamentals that are, are remain there, then they will continue to be bred. Most of the people in Afghanistan don't want the Taliban back, but they are accommodating to the United States' departure uh, from the region. And that is what I think is causing us a great deal of difficulty. Did you ever hear the President of the United States utter the word success in Afghanistan? He just announced withdrawals and he overrode the recommendations of his military leadership. Now, should you always do what your military leadership tells you to do, that you should do? No. But I think you've got to have a reason usually for overriding those recommendations. And I've never heard a good reason for us only giving 30,000 instead of 40,000 for the initial surge in Afghanistan, which prevented us from going to the east as well as the south at the same time. Look, the other night in Kandahar, uh, and it got so little publicity, I've been astounded. They had 15 people shoot out a tower, get into the base. That's the, Kandahar and Bagram are the two most heavily defended. They destroyed six Harrier aircraft. They're $30 million each. That is $200 million of taxpayers' money went up with, a, with an attack by 15 people. Now, that, that's not a success story. And uh, unfortunately, this, nothing hurts, I'll end with this, nothing hurts morale more than not being able to trust your allies. And this business of, uh, of uh, Afghans in uniform shooting and killing Americans in uniform I can't emphasize to you enough how harm, harmful that is to not only morale but efficiency. Yes? No, right in front of you there. Hi, I'm Patrick Wills with uh, Standpoint Magazine. Um, 
this has been an, an issue that's been largely ignored, but you did mention principle in foreign policy and how the United States needs to be um, a positive um, influence to the rest of the world. Um, and, I th and I think we are. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, Mitt Romney did say during the primary campaign and in December that he supports advanced interrogation techniques outside the Army field manual, and he did say that he does not believe that waterboarding is indeed torture. Um, do you believe that? I don't, I don't believe that he said the second thing, but, but I will take your word for it. Okay. Go ahead. Do you, would, do you believe that if um, elected, uh, President Romney would um, challenge or revoke Obama's executive order, or, and would you support it? Well, of course, I think you know I would not support it. Uh, and he couldn't do it anyway because, fortunately, we passed a law that prohibits it. And uh, <coughs> if he decided to bypass that, we would have him in court in a New York minute. Uh, look, my friends, I'm proud of the United States of America. I'm proud to be an American. I am so proud of our history. I am ashamed and embarrassed at what we did uh, in interrogation of prisoners. And I cannot overstate the damage that it did to the image of the United States of America, especially in the Middle East when we practiced that. And it will be a black mark on the history of the United States of America as long as historians are writing about this chapter in American history. Yeah, the guy with the tie, huh? And Hello, Mr. McKinney. I'm really pleased to have you here, Michael Sharon, an LSE alumni. Um, to take the flip side of the gentleman's question about the United States and its decline, on the domestic front, for the last 30 or 40 years, so much of the consumption which has driven the, the economic might of the United States has been driven by leverage huge amounts of debt both on the corporate sides, individual sides. Whoever's elected president is going to have to do some very, very tough cuts and the amount of discretionary capital will be in Americans' pockets will be greatly diminished, which will again slow down the economic might, the domestic economic power. How do you see, irrespective of whether it's Romney or Obama, how, the, how that's the politicians like yourself address this to the American public and how they need to move forward and keep American economic might? First of all, I agree with everything you said. We're facing a cliff and probably of almost historic proportions as to what may happen if the President and the Congress don't act together uh, to resolve it. But you see, I, I believe that to, I'm not a trickle-down economist, but I do believe that there's dynamism associated with creating conditions for people to trade, invest, to create jobs. Right now, the National Federation of Independence uh, Business, all the small business people will tell you that people are holding back on investment and hiring because they don't know what's going to happen next. They don't know when the next regulation is going to come down. They don't know what their taxes are going to be. That's one reason why we get this 11% approval rating. Uh, this Congress was the least productive Congress since 1947. I don't know what the hell they were doing in 1947, but uh, <laughs> so, so we need to have an environment where people will save and invest. And if that means that they pay less taxes, it seems to me that's okay. Uh, l l let me just remind you, when Ronald Reagan came to office in 1981, uh, you may recall, Inflation was in double digits, interest rates were 21%, and unemployment was 15%. Those are rough, roughly the numbers. 
And so what did we do? We cut taxes. We streamlined the, to some degree. It wasn't until 86 that we really did significant streamlining of the tax code. And we were able to have the greatest period of job growth in, uh, in modern history. My friends, the outline is there. It's a thing called Simpson-Bowles. It's not rocket science. It's not complicated. I don't need to have someone from LSE to tell me that, uh, how to do it. It's there. The Simpson-Bowles Commission, if you use that, that blueprint, and maybe with some changes, then um, I, th I think we would be... That's why I have guardedly optimistic we may... Uh, come together. Uh, just let me give you one small example. Right now there's one and a half trillion dollars of American business profits sitting overseas. Why is it staying overseas? Because we have the highest corporate tax rate in the world. 35% tax rate the United States of America has. So why don't we tell GE to say, okay, listen, you bring that money home, tell us how you're going to hire, tell us how you're going to invest, and we'll give you, let you bring it back at 8% uh, uh, taxation. Isn't that a hell of a lot better than have it stay parked overseas? There's some common sense things that we can do as well. And I don't know if I responded to your question or not. Pardon me? Wait, hang on. I, I think you could, but that's what we've been doing. I mean, that's what QE2 is, and QE3, and QE5, if he keeps, keeps doing that. So I, I'm not sure that that is the answer. I really believe that if we create a, a this is a simplistic answer, but if we created an environment where we could assure small businesses across America, here's a tax you're going to pay, we're going to simplify this tax code for you, and we are going to give you some incentives to invest and hire, uh, and not, look, Obamacare has already issued 100,000 pages of regulation. You're the small business person, you're going to hire an accountant, or you're going to hire another employee. So that's, uh, and I believe that simplification of the tax code is, 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 is vital. In 86, we did it thanks to Senator uh, ben, uh, uh, Bradley, Bill Bradley, and we had, and it contributed a great deal to our economy. Yes? How many more questions can you take? 20. <laughs> <laughs> what time are we going to go? I don't know, where's my, where's my guys? Do you sleep back there? The gentleman there, yeah. Um, hi, hi, Mr. McKay. My name is Sheehan Chandrasinghe. Uh, firstly, thanks for coming to speak to us here today. Could you speak um, up just a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, um, I just had a question about um, your comments earlier about your disappointment that President Obama hasn't spoken up more against Bashar al-Assad and your regret that America didn't intervene and help the people of Libya in Gaddafi's last days. Do you have an element of sympathy with President Obama given the a huge economic problems he's had to face at home and maybe understand also his unwillingness to intervene given, um, given the lack of support from the Republican Party over the past couple of years over a range of issues. Well, first of all, again, let me remind you on many issues that, that President Obama in the first two years of his presidency had 60 votes in the Senate, overwhelming majority in the House. And he passed all these bills without a single Republican vote. Obamacare, stimulus, Dodd-Frank, all those were done without Republican vote. So I have to say my sympathy there is somewhat limited. 
1951, things weren't going well in Korea. The American people, about 85% of them, wanted us out of Korea. They wanted us out. It was done. It was a phony war. There was no victory. MacArthur was fired by, the, by President Truman, and he came back, and he gave this magnificent speech before both houses of Congress. And you know what Harry Truman did? He stood fast. He stood fast in the face of public opinion. And one might argue that they lost the election, the Democrats did in 1952, because of Korea, because Eisenhower said, I will go to Korea. It requires leadership. It requires the American people want to be led. They want to be informed. I don't expect the guy on Central Avenue who's struggling with his small business and working 18 hours a day and got two employees to know a hell of a lot about what's going on in Syria today. That's the job of leaders. That's the job of leadership. <coughs> when there was 1.5 million people in the street in Tehran in 2009 chanting in English, Obama, Obama, are you with us? Are you with them? Do you know what they said? Nothing. Nothing. So, uh, I, I don't mean to sound partisan here, but I do grieve for these people because I think they deserve to have a chance at, at, at a free and open society. I don't think the Iranians are very well off under uh, Ahmadinejad and the Grand Ayatollah. And so it, it, I do believe that it's, that it's about leadership. Americans still do trust their president, particularly on national security issues. And I, that isn't, uh, people say, what would you have done? You know, well. I can tell you one thing I would have done, and that's what Ronald Reagan did. Oh, well, the one at the front. You want to take 20, do you? No, no. We'll <laughs> <laughs> the one, maybe we'll take two. Take about three yeah, or four. Yeah. 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 Hi, my name is Magnus. I'm a journalist from Denmark. You said that you want the uh, U.S. in its foreign policy to do more in Asia and also more in the Middle East. But we are in times of economic crisis, obviously. So I just wondered, what should the U.S. do less in the world? Uh, well, first of all, on the issue of, of defense spending, our defense spending has been declining, and it should because we're out of, for better or for worse, we're out of Iraq and we are leaving Afghanistan. We are already implementing $460 billion worth of defense cuts already. On, then you've got sequestration, which is, I won't bother with all the details, but it's another $470 billion worth of defense cuts. So. Uh, uh, and as a percent, per, percent of GD, gross domestic product, uh, defense spending continues to decline, which it should, given that we have disengaged. But those people would say, oh, all this all problem is because of defense spending. It, it's not. Uh, in the first two years of the Obama administration, def, uh, domestic spending went up 24%. Defense spending stayed basically level. So. It's very popular to say we're, you know, all this is caused by defense spending. Um, so uh, we do need, if we're going to emphasize Asia, we need more ships and we need more airplanes, the vast spaces and oceans uh, of the Pacific. Uh, but I don't think it's unaffordable. And I do think that if you had a peaceful Asia, and greater free trade agreements with Asia, such as the Korean Free Trade Agreement and many others in this Trans-Pacific Partnership that we are talking about, which is a vast free trade uh, agreement between all of these countries, it would be the greatest boon to the United States economy that we could ever contemplate. 
but at the same time, there has to be a secure environment. And <coughs> every one of these countries outside of China is saying we need American presence here. Again, not to confront China. I don't believe we're going to confront and have a war with China. But the fact that we have solidify alliances, the fact that we are there as a force for good, as we have been throughout the world, I think is a wise investment. Last question there, uh, Senator. Is that okay? You want to? Okay. One. Uh, we'll take two questions after this. All right. All right. Yes. One and two. Senator, uh, my name is uh, Ben Mueller. I'm a PhD student in international relations. Thanks very much for, for coming today. I appreciate it. Um, it's probably always a, a bad idea to sort of peer into the crystal ball uh, and make predictions about the future. Nevertheless, it seems to me the one chief ingredient that allows for meaningful predictions is experience. And you have plenty of that. So I would invite you to um, offer us a vision for the world in 2030, the American role in that world, whether you think it's going to be more conflict-driven or more peaceful, and just some, some comments on where you think the trajectory of world politics is headed would be appreciated. <laughs> First of all, let me remind you of the famous American philosopher Yogi Berra, who who once said, never try to predict, especially when you're talking about the future. So, uh, um, does it joke? Okay. Uh, no, you are, you are. Uh, I, I think that, and I probably should have said this in my opening remarks, and I'll try to be brief. I think that this device has changed the world. And it will change the world for the better, and there will be things, unintended consequences, as well as consequences. They never could have gotten 300,000 people in the square, in Tahrir Square, three hours, as the young man uh, told me that, that he could do with his Blackberry. Uh, I'll never forget being with a group of young people in Tunisia uh, who had made the revolution there. And one of them said to me, young woman said, you know who our national hero is? I said, who? She said, Mark Zuckerberg. And she wasn't kidding. And this is impossible to restrain forever. You cannot stop that these new means of communications uh, from spreading throughout every part of the world, no matter how repressive and oppressive the government is. I think it is the biggest change in civilization since the invention of the printing press. And so my prediction about the future is that you will see a lot of upheaval in the world, just as we have seen in the last couple of years. And you're going to see a lot of strife. But I also think that it gives ordinary citizens a chance to communicate and to realize their hopes and dreams that was not possible before the invention of social networking. Now, I don't like a lot of the stuff that I see on Facebook. I don't like a lot of the tweets. I don't like, you know, there's a lot of things that, that I don't like about it. And I don't like sex texting and some of the downsides uh, of it. But overall, I'm telling you, it, this is, this is going to change the world. And I can't predict exactly what it's going to look like, but it will never be the same again. Because people are going to be individually empowered in a, in a, as a, in a way that they never have before in history. Okay, two final questions. I said one on the left. Uh, Democrat, is it? No, okay. And, and one on the right. Then or, we have to... Or, or communist. Is that right? <laughs> 
Uh, hi, Senator Kane. It's a privilege uh, to be here. There are a couple of points that you mentioned earlier I'd like to take you up on if I could. Uh, the first, first of all, you bemoaned the gridlock in, the gridlock in Congress, but um, I follow it reasonably closely, and the impression I get is you have perhaps lurched further to the right, and suddenly in terms of, uh, in, with respect to where you were originally, than anyone else. I mean, and a couple of examples that come to mind are you, uh, you, you co-sponsored the Conrad Gregg deficit reduction bill, then you voted against it as soon as Obama came out for it. You, um, you said after Obamacare passed that they poisoned the well and that you were not going to cooperate with Obama for the rest of the year. That was in March, so that's nine months that you wrote off cooperation. Um, and there are a number of other, other examples I won't go into now. So, I mean, given this, I think you, know, you, you are in some respects a poster child for somebody who is, uh, you know, who, who, who is um, fu fully involved with the partisan gridlock. Is it, A, on the one hand, a bit difficult to bemoan it, and also, um, do you have any hope, as Obama seems to, that the fever will break if he does win the election, um, and that maybe uh, you'll be able to come back to the centre? And very quickly, secondly, um, you were supportive of uh, President, pa uh, President Palin, no way, um, of, uh, of, of um, ex-Governor Palin, um, and you said quite rightly that she energised the base and you supported her in that respect. But um, I think the more important question that I have yet to see you answer in four years is, as I think she was demonstrably unsuitable for either the position of Vice President or President, and I wonder, do you think she honestly, four years later, do you honestly think she was suitable for either of those positions? Thank you. Well, thank you. For, first of all, she was demonstrably qualified. She was totally qualified. She had been a governor. She knew, uh, and, and you know, you can shake your head. No, you, everybody's entitled to their opinion. And my opinion is that she was totally qualified. She was a lot more qualified than Barack Obama was who had gone from being a, a state senator to uh, two years in the United States Senate uh, without a bit of background or knowledge of anything to do with military and national security. At least she'd been ahead of the Alaska National Guard. So, uh, in a, and I don't expect you to agree with me, but the fact is the attacks on her were unprecedented and in my view uh, disgraceful and vicious. She said she could see Alaska from her backyard. I mean, Russia from her backyard. You can, it's, Russia is not that far away, just across the straits. But that was, that was really how dumb and uninf uninformed she was. I'm not going to review and go through all of that with you. She was qualified. She has a, f a fine family. She had knows leadership. She inspired our party and uh, still is inspirational to a whole lot of Americans who uh, are, and I am proud that, that she ran. And so you're entitled to your opinion, and I'm entitled to my opinion, but don't assert things that, as facts when they are not. Because what the media and the liberal left and the feminists did to her was still, in my view, one of the most execrable things that I have ever seen. Now, you talked about areas where I disagreed with the president. You know one reason why I didn't like Obamacare? Because it was the sleaziest process ever engaged in in the United States Senate in the 30 years I've been in it. It was sleaze, and everybody knew it. They called it the Louisiana Purchase when they went out and bought the senator from Louisiana's vote. From Nebraska, we called it the Cornhusker Kickback, where they bought them in. The Obama said that he wouldn't have any lobbyists in the White House. He had them in the Blair House. They came in the Blair House. The pharmaceutical companies, they bought them off with a special deal, and they spent $150 million touting Obamacare. I can show you the emails between AARP and the people in the White House where they were saying to AARP, we've got to get you to weigh in. We're going to do whatever you want, but we've got to weigh in. I'll send you the emails if you're, if you're curious about it. 
It was pure sleaze. And I didn't like sleaze, and I fought against sleaze. That's why I'm proud of a lot of the reform work that I've done with McCain-Feingold and many, and many others. And by the way, I work, for example, with Carl Levin, the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, and I work together, and we bring the defense bill to the floor. And uh, I am still engaged in a bipartisan basis with many others on, on, on many issues. That's not my record, and it's not my reputation. Now, again, you are entitled to arrive at your own conclusions, but no, most Americans and most people in my home state believe that I work in a bipartisan basis across the aisle and for the good of the country, and quite often have I disagreed with my own party. And that is also a matter of record. Yes, sir. Okay, last question. This. Okay. Hi, Senator. My name is Nicholas Walters. I'm a grad student here. As an American, I'm exceedingly disappointed with President Obama and quite happy that Mitt Romney... Glad to hear from you. <laughs> and very happy that Mitt Romney seemed to have found his voice in the debate, largely perhaps by going towards the middle. How do you think he's going to, if at all, if he can, narrow the gap between now and Election Day? And what advice would you give him where to focus his attention if you were his campaign manager? Hmm. Well, first <laughs> of all, could I mention again, I lost. <laughs> Second of all... I would like to ask your sympathy for the families of the state of Arizona because Barry Goldwater from Arizona ran for President of the United States and a guy named Morris Udall from Arizona ran for President of the United States and a guy named Bruce Babbitt from Arizona ran for President of the United States and I from Arizona ran for President of the United States. Arizona may be the only state in America where mothers don't tell their children that someday they can grow up and be president <laughs> of the United States. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you touched on, on, on that because I, I think it would be well to give you my assessment of, the, of this debate real quick. And it is obviously a partisan depiction. I mean, I have no doubt about that. But w during the, we now have thanks to overturning McCain-Feingold by the Supreme Court, the worst decision, in my view, of the United States Supreme Court in recent history. There's unlimited amounts of money now coming in. Uh, Barack Obama just hit the $1 billion mark in, in fundraising. And so you have all these outside groups pouring in all this money as well. Well, while Romney was going through the primaries, especially in these six or seven or eight swing states, there was a constant barrage of negative ads about Romney, painting him as Richie Rich, Bain Capital, out of touch, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And I can show you the unfavorables went up and up and up on, on Mitt Romney, understandably. He's fighting the primaries, and there, so there's no response. So this impression was there in the American people's mind. So here comes the debate, and obviously even Democrats, uh, maybe there's an exception or two, uh, believe that, uh, that, the, uh, that Romney won the debate hands down. Probably the most lopsided popular opinion that we have seen uh, uh, in a debate. And, but what it achieved for Mitt Romney was it dispelled these hundreds of millions of dollars that were spent painting him as this out-of-touch uh, rich guy. So that is really the, the, the reason why just winning the debate isn't so important, but it wiped out that image. Now, it's far from over. We've got a debate between Joe, the gift that keeps on giving Biden, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, uh, and our friend Paul Ryan, very new and young guy. It'll be very interesting. I have no idea how it's, it's gonna, uh, how it's gonna come out. 
but then probably the second debate will probably be important. As you know, Ronald Reagan made, you know, the, you know all the history of people who have stumbled in their first debates and then recovered <coughs> in the second. So, but the second debate is a town hall format. In other words, like this. And so it's a little harder to go head to head when you're, someone's asking the question from the audience and responding to the audience rather than, than each other. So there was 80 million people that watched that debate. I'll bet you that 30 million people had never seen Mitt Romney before live. And so that's one of the reasons why you're seeing this, this turnaround. But I would not underestimate President Obama. I would not underestimate his skills and his ability to speak and speak directly to, to the American people. So uh, I think that the next... And the other interesting kind of thing about American politics, debates used to be part of a campaign. Then it got to be a bigger part, and then a bigger part. And these Republican primaries were watched by unprecedented numbers of people, even in the Republican primaries. So they've become, in my view, maybe now too important. You know, one gaffe, one serious mistake and all that. They may have become too important as far as looking overall at the candidates. And finally, I, <coughs> a lot of it's going to come down to turnout. In 2008, the African-American vote was energized. Uh, a lot of the young people were energized, and that's the great credit of President Obama. And he deserves that credit. It was a really a remarkable turnout. The question is, is he going to be able to get that same turnout? Now, the question for Republicans is, how much of the Hispanic vote are you going to get? Right now, it's not much. Uh, George Bush got 44% of the Hispanic vote in 2004. I got 34%. Right now, Romney's sitting down around 20-some percent. Now, the largest, fastest-growing demographic in the United States of America is Hispanic. In my own state, 45% of the kids in school are Hispanic. So you don't have to do the math to, to see what. So the Republicans are going to have to come forward with Democrats and address the issue of comprehensive uh, immigration uh, reform. So. Look, as flawed as it is and as, and as screwed up as it is and everything like that, it's still one hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> and, uh, and I believe that, uh, that uh, I, I will trust. As I said after I lost in 2008, I trust the judgment of the American people. I believe in the greatness of America. I believe in our future. And I believe that no one individual or group of individuals can stop that progress. But I also think that we need to do a lot of work to restore the confidence of the American people. That's how you got the Tea Parties, that's how you got the um, uh, well, sit-in people. Uh, Wall Street. Yeah, uh, and, and all of that. And so, uh, but I'm very confident that we will come together, hopefully come off of this uh, cliff and and restore American leadership. Could I just finally say, all of you here, I hope that you enjoyed this, but most of all, I hope you appreciate what, it, what a unique opportunity it is for you to be in this institution and be exposed to the knowledge and information that you are privileged to have. There are millions and billions of people all over the world that will never have this opportunity, 
So I hope you'll make the most of it, whether you are Republican or Democrat or Libertarian <laughs> or Vegetarian, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I hope you will enjoy this experience and then go back to wherever that you go back to and share your knowledge and information and leadership uh, with the people that you serve. And nothing is more valuable and nothing is more rewarding than to serve a cause greater than your own self-interest. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.